Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I am here with Jared Champion and Peter Kunze, who are the editors of Taking a Stand, Contemporary U.S. Stand-Up Comedians as Public Intellectuals. Uh, Jared and Peter, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Happy to be here. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this collection came to be, why you wanted to sort of get it, put it together, and and why this was an important topic for you to look into? This this one started, um, Pete and I sort of shared an interest in stand-up comedy, and we were, I think it was the 2014 American Humor Studies Association Conference down in New Orleans. We um, started kind of kicking around this idea of, talking about stand-up comics as public intellectuals. And, and it was my first time meeting Rebecca Crafting and Pete had already known her. So he had introduced the two of us. And, and so it sort of started with some conversations at a conference where we were thinking through these ideas and, um, and knowing that we had sort of this vibrant conversation happening in humor studies about stand-up comedy. And with the advent of Netflix, we thought it was sort of uh, a good moment to, to try to get something out there and, and, um, and yeah, that was basically kind of the, the the seedling of it. And then and then Pete can tell us a little more about the sort of how we picked out the different authors and whatnot. <clears throat> yeah, I think a, a big inspiration for us was um, just noticing uh, perhaps changing functions or renewed functions of stand-up comedians um, in society. And, and certainly during the time that this collection was gestating, you know, thinking about Sarah Silverman at the Democratic National Convention and basically trying to mediate between uh, the Clinton supporters and the Sanders supporters, right? And um, shows like Politically Incorrect, and then uh, even on MSNBC or Fox News, bringing on a a stand-up comedian, um, not just in their capacity as a comedian, but, you know, to get their thoughts, to get their opinions on what was going on in the world, whether it was someone like uh, Dennis Miller or Janine Garofalo, um, someone who was being seen not just as a comedian and thinking about that kind of intellectual function they were playing. Um, the Megan Garber piece had, had discussed comedians as public intellectuals for humor studies folks. We kind of had always believed that, um, but thinking about how they were being received differently in society and maybe how they were perceiving their own function in society in this context um, and kind of corralling it around um, contemporary comedians, many of whom had not been written about at length before, was certainly attractive for us. So we issued a call and, um, you know, you, you the exciting thing about stand-up comedy is it really draws in people from so many different disciplines. And I think readers will see that in the collection. We have... Um, we have individuals who work in English or, uh, you know, language studies or people who work in rhetoric, um, media studies, film studies. Uh, we have an anthropologist. We have a legal scholar. Um, sociologist. So, sociologist. Yeah. I mean, there's there's many ways to kind of come at this topic, which on the one hand is 
super exciting and on the other hand is kind of super curious to see how you make all these voices work in one collection. But I think that um, they do a really nice job of kind of staking out like, here's my method and here's my approach and, um, and here's what we get out of stand-up comedy when we come at it from this vantage. Uh, so yeah, I think when we put together the the collection initially, uh, we had an embarrassment of riches. I think we initially accepted twenty proposals, fully aware that we would lose some folks along the way. Um, and you know, it was mostly trying to see a, a balance of established folks and emerging comedians, the range of issues that were being just talked about, the the disciplinary perspectives, um, you know, a, a range of. Uh, different positionalities, all of these were major concerns in thinking through um, who would make it into the, the final volume. Um, and then and edited collections always require a certain degree of stamina, unfortunately. So some of the time, you know, people would have to leave because uh, either they they didn't agree with peer review or with our feedback or, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's, you have to have a few years and, you know, when you're contributing to an edited collection. Yeah, it was really important to us as we were putting this together to cover a broad range of different types of comedians as well. And, you know, we mentioned that a little bit in the introduction that we started out with 20 and we had a much more balanced sort of um, representation of, of comedians, right? So we were really interested in having different, um, different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, men and women represented, um, had some really great opportunities to kind of cover different sexualities and, and such. And for the most part, many of those still maintained and stayed in the collection, but we lost a handful through kind of at the last last stages, we lost a few that we thought would have really brought some nice balance to the piece. And that was a bit unfortunate, but at the same time, I think the pieces we have in there, I mean, even thinking through the the I was looking back over the book this weekend and seeing the the discussion of mental illness or even um, you know Christopher Gilbert's piece on Bobby Henline and and sort of veterans and covering some different um, political socio political positions I thought I thought there's a really nice range to the to the different pieces. Yeah. And one of the things that was important to us, certainly in 2015, when we were getting started and became increasingly important throughout the collection, was we noticed a lot of the work on stand-up comedy was kind of steering clear of conservative comedians. And um, it was really important to us to think about, you know, uh, what function was stand-up comedy playing among you know, uh, libertarians or um, Christian conservatives. Uh, and we were excited to see that there were folks who were willing to contribute who wanted to talk about those issues. And then uh, under President Trump, I mean, it, it certainly became important to really re-examine the function of comedy um, in public discourse and and in particularly to think about the corrosive effects that comedy can have. You know, in, in many ways, a lot of comedy scholarship is still coming from this kind of laughter is the best medicine approach. Um, but it's really important to kind of think through um, when is laughter being used to divide? When is laughter being used to deride? When is laughter being used to exclude, um, disenfranchise? And um, I, I think that uh, the pieces here really kind of come at that in really important and interesting angles. Um, and I'm thinking in particular pieces like Raul Perez's on Lisa Lampanelli, um, which kind of have like a no holds barred approach. Like, you know, I'm not going to argue this is, you know, an equal opportunity offender kind of aesthetic. I'm going to argue that this is actually really dangerous what's going on. Yeah. And that's the value of having someone like Raul, who's a sociologist by training. 
Yeah. So to get into sort of how you put this together, right, you divided these into sort of a three different areas that you felt, sort of how, how they sort of talked to each other, talked with each other. Um, so let's talk about each of them a bit. Uh, so do you want to start with kind of that first section where you have a number of pieces that kind of have to do with of more physicality. I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but um, so can you talk a little bit about what you were trying to do there and some of the pieces that are in that, in, in that category? Yeah, that was, that was the, one of the biggest challenges, I think critically when we were putting this together, trying to group those different pieces together. So basically at that point in the process, we were down to the finished um, chapters. We knew what was going to make it and which ones were moving on and trying to find some through lines where we could even cluster them and kind of, I mean, you, you know, we could have gone back and reorganized this 15 different ways and paired them together in a number of different ways, but it seemed really, it seemed really smart to think about bodies specifically in this section. Um, and, and, you know, Linda Mizjewski's piece on, Monique's I could have been your cellmate. That one is just a really great one. By the way, if you're listening and you're, uh, if you teach, that one is one of the best for teaching. Um, I've used it in a number of classes in draft form, and now I'm able to use it in printed form. And so that piece really considers sort of the, the setting of um, stand-up comedy because Monique goes to a women's prison and, and Ms. Jeffsky does a great job of negotiating the sort of territory of space and how Monique builds community, but also kind of to Pete's point about representing different groups and thinking through the politics. This is, uh, Monique has a, a largely socially conservative position throughout her comedy special there where she talks a lot about personal responsibility over sort of systems of power. Um, and so that seemed really interesting. And then and then kind of moving forward there with Christopher Gilbert's piece, this was um, one of the, just as a, just as a compliment to Christopher, I mean, it was one of the few pieces that came through almost completely ready to go from day one. I mean, he had it really nicely polished and ready to go. And I believe uh, he just published his book through Penn State Press on um, stand-up comedy and, um, and war figures or veterans and, and sort of the wounded body. And this piece is really fascinating in terms of that visibility. And so basically he argues that he argues that Bobby Henline, he's a, he's a, a comedian who is also a soldier, uh, who was wounded by a roadside bomb and his face is disfigured. He's clearly showing the marks of, um, the explosion that, that got him. And he has a really upbeat, positive kind of um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps positivity. And so he basically walks this paradoxical line where he forces people to see the wounded body, but then also um, he runs the risk of reinforcing this idea of being mentally tough enough to overcome your wounds, both physically and mentally. Um, and then Pete, I think maybe you could talk a little more even um, uh, more specifically about the other two pieces in the section, I believe. Um, those were the uh, Beck's piece on uh, Maria Bamford and then Katie Kine's piece on Tignataro. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that kind of we came up against in kind of um, putting the collection together was thinking about what do we talk about when we talk about stand-up comedy, right? Um, and, and Jared and I both come from an English background, and then I um, went back to school uh, 
out of sheer masochism and, and did more graduate work in media studies. Um, and uh, one of the things that often gets focused on is what they say, right, <laughs> obviously, and, and just a textual analysis. But um, as scholars in, in um, anthropology and rhetoric who've talked about stand-up comedy have reminded us, right, it's an embodied performance. Um, and, you know, what does it mean when certain bodies go into spaces and how they're perceived and, and how they negotiate that audience, right? One of the things we've often talked about with our, our friends in terms of thinking about the politics of comedy is, like, it's very different to try to negotiate um, a message or your, your routine in front of a, an arena of 3,000 people versus, say, an intimate venue of 150. Um, so it's interesting to think about how some of these comedians have kind of um, taken that trajectory towards the arena route, and some have actually maybe gone into um, alternative comedy or have gained fandom um, subculturally uh, without necessarily meaning that in a... In a um, I'm, I'm not deriding their work. It's just a different career trajectory, right? Um, and someone like Maria Bamford is kind of fascinating because I think she kind of really has done, you know, she has that kind of history in alt comedy, but she also has, you know, mainstream legibility. I mean, she's had a Netflix series and, and her work's fairly accessible and she's done a lot of appearances and films and whatnot. Um, and in Beck's piece, she's kind of thinking through um, Bamford's advocacy for mental health um, and Beck's connecting it to her larger ideas of charged humor, right? This notion that humor can be uh, a tool um, uh, in which uh, cultural citizenship can be advocated for, can be achieved, um, and thinking about how you kind of bring people into the fray. Um, and I, I think that that kind of contribution to humor studies has really been um, energizing over the last few years. I mean, to me, Beck is one of the most exciting thinkers we have in the field. Um, yeah, I think I think we should just for a second really um, kind of dig in on this one a bit because it sort of unites quite a bit of what we're talking about. And so um, Beck, Rebecca Crefting put out a book in 2014 from Johns Hopkins Press called um, All Joking Aside, American Humor and Its Discontents. And the, the sort of central argument is that comedy holds such a such an important position in the in the culture making in America that when a comedian from a marginalized community stands on stage and tells jokes tied to the experience of marginalization, that it rationalizes or legitimizes cultural citizenship for people in that population. So cultural citizenship is different. Citizenship is voting rights, driver's licenses, ability to own land, right? Um, cultural citizenship is this sort of less formal, more um, more nebulous sense of belonging and that you belong in a certain space. And so the stand-up comedians like Maria Bamford standing on stage doing this work about mental illness creates space for people with mental illness. But it's also about this sort of exposure of things that are erased. And that's one of the things that's sort of a through line of many of these pieces where, you know, we talk about mental illness, but people are still very uncomfortable around mental illness and not sure what to do. And then kind of blending into Tignataro's work where Tignataro represents an androgynous body and a body that was um, sick at one point, right? And so we talk about cancer patients as being brave and we, we want to talk about this sort of rhetoric of bravery, but we don't want to be confronted with a scarred body, right? And so it, in her special... Um, Boyish Girl Interrupted, I believe, was the one she performed for HBO and takes her shirt off halfway through following a double mastectomy. And so 
really powerful. But what's fascinating in that moment, again, kind of going back to Pete's comment earlier about the, the sort of function of comedy, you know, she's she takes off her shirt, but her body never becomes a prop. It's just sort of a fact. It's a corporeal existence, right? And so uh, Kind finishes that chapter with that beautiful line from that she borrows from Tignataro that she's just a person, right? And that's ultimately this sort of humanizing of a uh, body that makes people uncomfortable. But it, again, when we're thinking of moving beyond just the very words that are said, both Nataro and Bamford have a history of performing in spaces that are not the sort of legitimized comedy spaces. So Bamford performed one of her specials in her living room with her parents as the only audience members. And then Tignataro did a whole tour where she would only perform where she was invited. So she performed, I think, on the back of a tractor at one point and in a parking lot of a Wendy's. And, you know, she did these sort of basically moving outside of those traditional spaces and really opening up what we understand to be both comedy and comedians and the role of um, the role of that work socially. Yeah, that that's some of the most exciting work in humor studies right now is work that's considering um, audience and considering space in exciting new ways, right? Uh, David Giada has an article on that in um, Studies in American uh, Humor, a few, a few uh, I guess it was last year or the year before, it was very, quite recent. Um, but, but, what strikes me about Beck's chapter and um, Catherine's chapter in, in conversation with each other is kind of the reparative nature of what they're doing, right? They're kind of thinking through um, the community building that can happen, the agent, agential qualities of, of stand-up comedy, um, advocacy. Um, so I think this is really important for, um, you know, I, I spoke earlier about the the need to be kind of suspicious of, of comedy, <laughs> but also I, I, I think that, you know, it, it has to be kind of balanced out nicely. And I think that these chapters in particular kind of point to the important um, cultural work being done um, by, by these, uh, these comedians. And I think in, in Catherine's chapter as well, her, her, her theorizing of awkwardness is really useful and generative. Jared talked about how Linda's chapter is very teachable. I, I agree completely. It's why we put it as the lead essay. Um, but, but all of these authors were given a charge of like, this needs to work in an undergraduate classroom, right? This needs to be something that we can, we can take to our students. So many of the pieces, um, you know, came in around five to 6,000 words um, and, you know, we're kind of in, in those moments where they got a little um, theory heavy, we asked them to kind of maybe unpack or kind of walk us through it a little bit slowly, uh, slower. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that those two pieces are among um, the, the most exciting in terms of the possibilities and the hope they see in comedy going forward. And so, the, so this next group of essays, um, uh, thinks about sort of subjectivities and, and complications with subjectivities and um, not to bring up the man who <laughs> has, um, you know, been on the forefront of many people's minds lately, but uh, Chris Rock, you know, you start off with Chris Rock and move into some other more established comedians as well. But so can you talk about what was going on in um, thinking about and putting those two chapters together? Yeah, you know, those are those are some really some of the most difficult to process, I think, all of those different figures. And and Chris Rock, you know, he's an interesting one because he represents he represents sort of 
the the first generation of comics who reflect the the spirit of a, a African American experience growing up soundly in the middle class, and so it's a he represents this sort of complicated subjectivity where he's not Richard Pryor who's blowing himself up with a crack pipe. He's not um, Flip Wilson even. I mean, he's not talking about, he's not Sanford and son growing up in a junkyard, right? He is representing a new experience that we've not seen, but it requires this attention to the politics then of a more complicated subjectivity. And we see that run throughout. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, and, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, but I do think that we have this in American culture, I think that comedians are held to one of the highest standards. Um, and specifically, I, I was thinking of this when I was reviewing an essay just the other day, where, you know, you, comedians are expected to hold this high bar. And then we compare some of the comedians who have been canceled, right? And then we look at other figures. So I, I the classic example for me is Mike Tyson, who now has, he's had two TV shows, he's had, um, you know, he's got a a Broadway show. He's got, he's back in the mainstream. We've got Michael Vick, for example, who is um, pretty stable in the, I mean, he's a Fox news reporter now. So cancellation is never permanent. It seems like, but it does seem to have this sort of residual effect for comedians where, um, you know, Mike Tyson spent time in prison, Michael Vick as well. And there are many others. Liam Neeson seems to be back in the foray, but comedy seems to be one of those sort of factors where we're holding them to a higher standard. And so it's, it was interesting to me following the Chris Rock, um, incident at the Oscars, right? That it seemed pretty universal. People were defending him and it's just a joke, which is not the rhetoric we've heard in the past. 10 years or so. Um, but anyway, the Chris Rock piece I thought was really nicely kind of put together and it, and it highlights some of those complications where assumptions about race have to be complicated as we move forward. And, and I thought that that was a really interesting one. And then again, we ended up with that Louis CK piece. And I was thinking, Pete, you can talk to this a little bit. It was interesting to us because we, as we were editing this, I mean, we started it in 2015 and we had a couple of different we had a couple of bumps along the way where we had to move presses, but every time we would get some news like the Louis CK news or even the Aziz Ansari news, we were like, oh man, what do we do? Is there even time to address this? How do we put this in? Um, and and really, we I think, I think David Gelada did a good job of negotiating that Louis CK space. Um, but again, he talks a little bit about this idea that it felt like a betrayal, right? When the news came out about Louis C.K., specifically because it runs at odds with who he is. And I think, Pete, you had a piece on Louis C.K. and fatherhood well before, but it also was calling him out for some of this sort of inconsistency in his work, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot. There, uh, I should note that Jared's not on Twitter, um, and I am, uh, and so there has actually been a very mixed response to the Will Smith, uh, Chris Rock scenario, which we don't have to go into. Um, a colleague of mine in media studies, uh, Alfred Martin, mentioned on Twitter, it's like, you know, this is the most interesting thing about this is the reception, not the incident itself. It, it's how people are responding. Um, but, you know, along those lines, um, one of the things that excites me about this section is I think as teachers, especially working with popular culture, 
And especially working with popular culture now where students are coming to us and, and they're they're so wrapped up in social media discourse and many of them are interested in, in activist movements. Um, you know, you sometimes have a student who's like, well, it's problematic. Um, and I sometimes fear that they think that's the end of an analysis rather than the beginning of one. And what I particularly like about these sections, uh, the essays in this section, is trying to draw attention to the naughtiness, right? Like not trying to offer us a, this is a good comedian or this is a bad comedian, but think about the inherent contradictions and negotiations within the persona, particularly as many of these individuals in this section are kind of trying to appease multiple audiences, right? So um, I, I indeed have written about Louis C.K. Pr prior to um, the confirmation of, of the allegations. Um, and, you know, one of the things I was interested in then was how, you know, there's this kind of, um, let's say, traditionally macho humor that sometimes came through in his work, right? That was kind of aggressive and um, perhaps a little bit more mainstream. But then every once in a while, he'd have this dalliance where he'd go into thinking about racial politics or gender politics. Um, and it was almost like he was embedding these moments of kind of progressive whimsy in a larger routine. And I was interested in the kind of the the polyvocality there, right? Like on the one hand, you know, you're talking to this audience is expecting this kind of very, um, uh, very cisgender, <laughs> heteronormative kind of performance of masculinity in the comedy. And then there's this kind of thoughtful reflection on, you know, I think he has a great piece on, um, you know, time travel and how that's really a white fantasy. Like white people can go back in time, but is that a fantasy that's available to people of color? Um, and you know, and then it gets complicated by our awareness of him as a person. And I think that that raises some really important issues in terms of these kind of ongoing reevaluations we've had of the artist and their art um, that I think are not necessarily conversations where, you know, we want to offer any kind of definitive statement, but instead raise them for consideration, bring them to our students, let them unpack them, let them think about the questions they should be asking. Um, so I, I think that um, both Phil Schapansky's piece on Chris Rock and, and David uh, Giada's piece on, Gelada's piece on um, Louis C.K. really kind of rather than holding them up as beacons of what stand-up comedy is and should be, really kind of encourage us to think about stand-up comedy is messy. Um, and what do we do with it? And what are the various stakes and questions and concerns that it raises? Right. And I, I think that's why the, the two chapters between there, I kind of got out uh, ahead of myself there a little bit, but the two pieces, the one on Leguizamo by Chirico and um, the Raul Perez piece on Lisa Lampanelli are interesting because, you know, as Pete said, one of the things that shuts down analysis quickly for our students coming up today is this idea of somebody being problematic and, and that sort of I think it codes differently for students than it does for us. I don't know if this is the old man on the lawn, but I think a lot of times there's this idea that if somebody's problematic, we don't have to pay attention to them anymore. And the, the example I always give is that, you know, we still study cancer in the sciences just because it's ugly doesn't mean we don't need to explore it. Right. And so we have, um, you know, Raul's piece is interesting because he does a really, uh, 
really great job of articulating Lisa Lampanelli is problematic. Let's explore how she operates in problematic ways. And I think, I mean, it's just really dialed in on, on this sort of articulation of what a post-racial fantasy is and how that opens a space for Lisa Lampanelli to do overtly racist humor and and kind of create that that sort of safe zone he's got a separate piece he's been working on that project for quite a bit where he talks about these techniques that comedians have for getting away with and i'm air quoting for those of you listening the getting away with this idea of race racist humor how do different groups do it what are their what are these techniques and and i would encourage anybody uh, working on race and humor to to start there i think it's a pretty pretty legible piece by way of application and then um you know, that double-edged sword is what Trico really gets into, that if you have somebody who is exploring a certain, you know, we there's a certain level of hyper hyperbolic um, representation that takes place anytime someone is representing sort of their community or their background or, or what have you. And so it's not unlike Christopher Gilbert's piece about Bobby Henline, that it's this double-edged sword of both representing a group, but also risking doing harm to that group by reinforcing stereotypes or problems that are inherent. So the difficulty, the the bigger difficulty to Pete's even earlier point is that's why audience studies is really important because, you know, once you put that message out there, you don't get to control what it means anymore. Even if you say that's not what I meant or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's the message has been sent and it's out of your control. Yeah. I think the Chirico piece for me was really important in thinking about the performer as kind of negotiating their own identity and persona, right? Um, you know, at, at one point I was working on the manuscript in, in a, on a flight back when I could fly without fear of the Rona. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I always get more work done on the plane. And I, at some point I just turned over the chapter I was editing and just wrote a list of methodological issues that stand-up comedy poses because this is the kind of nerdy stuff I do when I'm you know, 30,000 feet in the air. And one of the things I thought about is this tendency to talk about stand-up comedians as, as if they're consistent, right? That throughout their entire career, this is who George Carlin was. Throughout their entire career, this is who Richard Pryor was. This is, And I think we see this particularly with someone like, um, you know, Joe Rogan or something, right? Who obviously has taken on a very different persona and, and very different function in our society than, you know, when he was kind of a supporting character on news radio. Um so the Chirico piece really kind of, I think, is thoughtful about thinking about the negotiations of identity and also how persona develops. And, and that kind of longitudinal work in comedy studies is is really valuable. And and I just want to reiterate again my, my enthusiasm for Raul's um, chapter, which I think does a really great job of um, kind of situating an artist in a larger political, economic, social context. I think stand-up comedy is kind of a fascinating... Uh, artistic form for us to consider because on the one hand the text is completely unstable right the version of the routine that a comedian might do in des moines is probably going to be somewhat different from the version of the routine they're going to do in miami or they're going to do in san francisco right um and that kind of um flexibility and uh sophistication in catering to a context is quite fascinating um but at the same time you know if you, if we, when we read literary 
studies and think about the author, when we read film studies and think about the director, we're constantly reminded of the network of creators that are shaping the work. Um, whereas with the stand-up comedian, we're still kind of tied into this notion that you know when they're speaking on stage, they're speaking from themselves. Uh, we know some of them have writers. We know they adjust their routine to audiences, and those are important contributors to authorship and stand-up comedy. But in some ways, there's this kind of sense that the stand-up comedian perhaps is um, a pure artist, I guess, for lack of a better term, in that you know what they're saying is what they feel, rather than say watching a, you know, a film by someone like Wes Anderson or Quentin Tarantino and being aware of all these other creative laborers who are contributing to it. At the same time, I think Raul's chapter, and um, you know, we just want to put a plug in for his book, which is coming out that I think Jared and I are super excited for, "The Souls of White Jokes." Um, Raul does a really great job as a sociologist of linking, you know, the kind of like, I'm just kidding mentality that Lampanelli has this kind of like, we know racism is bad, so I can tell racist jokes, kind of thinking that she promotes and and, and he situates it beautifully in larger um, discussions over, you know, colorblindness and, and it also connects it um, to, you know, the neoliberal economy, right? I mean, that's really ambitious and exciting and generative work that he's doing. Um, and, and we're really grateful to have that piece in here. Yeah. And, and, you know, Pete, one of the things that you point out that I think is really critical, not just for us as scholars, but also I keep coming back to this idea of, of how these teach in the classroom. I've been really fortunate to be able to do courses that rely on stand-up comedy as sort of primary materials. And one of the things that students struggle with, and I think it speaks to the broader the broader understanding of stand-up comedy, is that you, you've got the person and the persona. And for most comedians, the persona is, let's say, Tom Segura, right? Tom Segura is a real living person, but Tom Segura is also a persona on stage, right? So there's this the closeness is really hard to decipher with the exception of somebody like an Andrew Dice Clay, right? Where it's clearly over the top kind of um, caricature or a Joe Para today would be somebody who I don't feel is, who I feel like you can kind of get a sense of persona pretty quickly in the, in the divide. And so that's one of the problems. And then one of the others, and I think this speaks to why comedians um, both have this promise and this risk culturally is is so much of stand-up comedy is presented as argument. And it's one of the things that my students struggle with frequently, being able to decipher argument, particularly argument laden with irony, because it's, you know, Bill Burr has a great line where he says, when people get offended, they flatten a joke into a statement. And I think that's where a lot of people really struggle is, is being able to understand the distance between the joke and the statement and, and specifically because there's this intent that we can never quite agree on, right? And that's that's Booth's argument about irony that, or not Booth, I'm sorry, Stanley Fish's argument about Booth's argument about irony, that we'll never really reach a stable understanding of irony because it, it would require us to know intent and to agree on intent, and we can never really get there. But it kind of points to, uh, kind of moving forward through that section, I think it highlights for us the the problem at work in Jerry Seinfeld's work. And full disclosure, I think the essay is great. I, I don't have much time for Jerry Seinfeld. I think uh, uh, I prefer comedy instead. Um, just a little jab there. Sorry, everybody. Uh, but, <laughs> but Jerry Seinfeld's an interesting character because he is simultaneously um, an apolitical comedian, but he seems really obsessed with this idea of um, political correctness nowadays and and kind of a jerk when you see him on um, 
I'm not even kind of, he's just a jerk to people and, and that's sort of who he is now. And I think it's, you know, it makes me think I've been, I've been reading a little bit of work by Sally Robinson on whiteness and the marking of masculinity and this sort of, um, her argument in marked men is that white men will adopt whiteness when it serves the purpose of, um, they will mark themselves when it serves a certain purpose and then refuse marking when it serves a purpose as well. And that's very much what I see in Jerry Seinfeld that, you know, he adopts this sort of clean persona and says, well, I'm just a comedian and let me do my work until he's then ready to weigh in on political correctness or these socio-political matters. And then he's like, well, I'm a comedian, so I should be weighing in and giving you my thoughts. I'm this sort of public intellectual. So there's this paradoxical um, understanding of self at the core of Jerry Seinfeld's work, both person and persona. Um, and I think that I think that chapter there the Viator chapter really gets at the heart of some of those complications that we're starting to see in his work. And I think others, I think Jon Stewart could be accused of this as well, that, you know, he goes on C-SPAN and then he claims that his voice shouldn't matter because he's just a comedian. Um, And I think that that's one of the sort of central paradoxes for a number of comedians is this willingness to weigh in and then refusal to own it. And I think we see that more and more often now from, or maybe less and less often, I don't know, um, but we're certainly seeing a, prevalence of that that motion you know to, to Jared, jared's jab at, at seinfeld i think this was one of the exciting things about working on this collection is you know sometimes the case studies were people we didn't really like as comedians and sometimes we didn't agree with the perspectives but we really wanted to have a collection um that offered kind of various perspectives and various takeaways, right? And, and this actually came up in the peer review. One of our peer reviewers, you know, said, oh, this isn't funny, this isn't comedy. And it's like, that's not even a question we're interested in right now, right? Like, we're interested in, you know, how is this functioning in public discourse? And um, the Viator chapter on Seinfeld to me is particularly fascinating because Seinfeld's in a bit of a crisis, I feel, as a comedian, right? Um, w- you know, um, I and others have written about in other places, like the digital has really reconfigured the power dynamics between um, the comedian and the audience, right? If if I can record your show and put it on social media, if I can, you know, subtweet you, if I can tweet you, um, you know, uh, that changes the power dynamic. Um, And this kind of traditional, like the audience sits and listens and the comedian presents is being um, renegotiated. And so you see someone who, like Seinfeld, who's, who's pretty old school and traditional in his approach, um, basically arguing like that this is not how this works, right? Like you can't tell us we can't do this. And, um, and the audience is saying, yes, we can, right? Because it is fundamentally, you know, and, and so on the one hand, it's a tension between art and commerce, right? I'm an artist. You can't tell the artist what to do. It's my job to express myself. And on the other hand, it's like, well, we're the audience and we pay for this. So we can actually critique what we're seeing. Um, And and Seinfeld clearly seems flummoxed by this relationship. And what I think is pretty interesting about uh, Viator's chapter is he turns to social work of all disciplines um, and, and, and offers us this idea of professional dissonance where the values and the reception are kind of at odds, right? Um, To kind of point to Seinfeld is almost this kind of um, swan song figure, right? This 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 old man on the lawn shaking his cane, who's kind of like, you know, this is not what comedy it was or should be, and at the same time realizing that, you know, you're being um, consumed, you're being distributed, you're being um, listened to in a very different context than 
you know, the nightclub scene of the 1980s. And, and that scene we've seen from, you know, historical work and ethnographic work is one that was incredibly toxic, right? Not only for the drug culture and the, 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 um, let, let's say the uh, self-abuse that went on behind the scenes with alcohol and, and uh, controlled substances, but also, you know, the way that women were treated, the way that people of color were treated, the way that um, queer folks were treated. Um, so there's this kind of, um, you know, on the one hand, pleading for free speech, but on the other hand, you know, really benefiting from and a product of a culture that was incredibly uh, exclusive and alienating. So your kind of final group of essays gets at um, this idea. And I think one of the things you were talking about that I thought was really interesting, especially around um, thinking about persona and thinking about um, comedians is that there's 24 seven access to people now, right? So we can, um, it's harder to cultivate a persona that is separate from who you are in some ways. Um, and, and you kind of look at that, right? These changing values in America, what all this means. And in that last, um, those, that last set of essays also is kind of getting at some of those issues with how, um, yes, how contemporary comedy changes because of, how, cause, because of how we're changing in the U.S. Um, so can you talk a bit about what was going on in that set of essays, what you were kind of thinking about and putting them, clustering them together? Yeah, you know, it was a that was a tough section because I, I thought there were some really nice through lines, but there were some places where some of the some of the pieces like Taylor's could have been moved elsewhere pretty easily. Um, and, and so it was a it was a challenging one, but really when we got to this part, we wanted to find out some way that we could cluster them and, and find that through line in a way that understood the, like you were pointing out, the sort of changing values in America and specifically around comedy. You know, I, I notice now when people talk about new stand-up specials or something they like or don't like, it comes back to that term problematic often, or uh, this sort of idea of agreement and, uh, and I think it's a, it's an important place here where we start seeing some some sort of disagreement or some opening of new possibilities and kind of that cultural imagination. So so for example, you know Taylor's piece, full disclosure, is one of my favorites in the entire collection um, because I think it articulates this role that comedians play well beyond the stage. And Como, W. Comovell does great stand up. His special. I think thinking of space in comedy, his his um, private school Negro special that's on Netflix, I believe still right now, is fascinating because he's on a stage with a 360 audience, right? So um, considering the sort of racial implications of that and who he's sort of surrounded. And anyway, there's a it's a really interesting piece. But then going into the United Shades of America and that special that is or that TV show on CNN it's nothing to do with comedy, right? It's in many respects, very similar. It goes back to that tradition of Dick Gregory who left comedy to march with Martin Luther King, right? That, that this sort of more important project to Bell exists. And there's this, this sort of juxtaposition of the, the public thinker. And there's a, there's a great episode where he interviews um, a clan master, right? Somebody in the KKK. And he's standing there wearing Converse and jeans and sort of, uh, to the title, you know, standing flat, flat-footed while this man won't even show his face, right? He's in his full regalia and whatever you call it. And so, you know, there's 
there's a new way of seeing the potential for comedy to create change or at least put people in a position to do that. But, but to that point earlier, you know, it's not always when we're thinking about the roles these figures play, it's not always the laughs that matter. Right. And, and in fact, we think of like the Joe Rogan piece, his audience is not anymore really the comedian's audience. There are people who are tuning in to hear interviews that he's given and these sort of conversations. So I think we have to move well beyond just thinking of them on stage. And, and something like Joe Rogan, I mean, it, 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 he was one of those figures that as we were finishing the book, we were like, if we were doing it, if we were starting today, he would have to have a chapter. But in some ways, he's representative of the glut of media content we have and the need to kind of go more extreme in the attempt to cultivate a niche audience, right? Um, because this is not the era of the stand-up comedian on The Tonight Show. This is the era of the stand-up comedian tweeting, stand-up comedian with a podcast, the stand-up comedian... Um, who is, you know, in movies, who's on TV, um, you know, and so, I mean, I think that has a really fascinating effect, I'll say diplomatically, um, and, and, and will be unpacked for years to come. And also just thinking about the precarious nature of the labor of the comedian, right? I mean, there's been so much attention in recent years to, um, the creative industries and how they, they don't provide a steady income for, for artists, but that's always been the case for the stand-up comedian. Um, so it's interesting to think about how that might affect the work they do. And, and along those lines, um, I share Jared's enthusiasm for, for Monique Taylor's chapter. Um, and part of the reason for, for why this chapter is so great and I think works well in that kind of transition between section two and section three is, you know, it's one thing to be like, well, this is a comedian and here are all the things they do, Right. It's another thing to be like, here's the comedian and their politics and their values and their commitments. And then, you know, they do some things in comedy and they do some things in television. And maybe rather than seeing everything as an extension of the comedic work, maybe seeing the the comedy as an extension of the political work or the activist work. Um, and I think Bell is kind of fascinating along those lines. And, and, and his docuseries is such a fascinating space for, for a comedian, right? Because in some ways it, it, it's going it's doing what we see with Samantha B or John Oliver or going back to Colbert and Stewart, but in the other ways, you know, it very much is, is journalism. Um, and it's not tongue in cheek journalism. Um, and I think that that's really um, exciting to think through the bounds of, of what comedy can do and what it does do in this media climate and in the social political climate. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, each comedian has a certain cultural re uh, resonance and, that resonance on these side projects. This is this is part of an argument of a different project that I've been working on. Um, but that resonance, if they migrate whatever made them successful on stage into a different platform, then it tends to be really successful. And so thinking through um, thinking through like Bo Burnham, for example, talks. He became famous because of this sort of digital engagement. He went viral, and then when he finally started his other projects, he he went to say eighth grade, this movie that considers social media and the digital age, and it wins awards, right? So he migrates what he did on stage into a different form, and it ends up working really nicely. And I wouldn't call that movie comedy even sort of, I mean, I mean it's not comedy, it's something different. And we see that, and, and we see that in the, the piece there from Tiagi on Aziz Ansari, and that his sort of cultural resonance is about this person who is really plugged into social media and understands how the sort of cultural mores have shifted in the digital age, 
now that chapter is really interesting. And I think we're going to have to watch Aziz Ansari in the future, because I think this chapter, if we if if Tiagi revised it today, there's some really fascinating stuff coming out, especially after the um, I don't I don't know what we would call it with Aziz Ansari, the situation. I think it's it's not quite the same as Louis C.K., but it's certainly something that was like an ugly part of his history. Right. And and he now is still selling out arenas. He played Atlanta at the Fox Theater and sold it out, I think, for two weeks straight or three nights. I don't know. Somewhere more than I could sell it out. Right. And. Um, but he also recently recorded his latest special, but he did so at Caroline's in New York and didn't tell anybody he was showing up. So it was just the surprise guest. And I don't know exactly how the releases worked, but there weren't any people blurred out. So there was there's this interesting kind of negotiation of that post-cancellation space. And, and I think there's a lot to be worked on there, but his awareness of how to make something like that happen without... Um, without event would be, I mean, Louis CK, for example, has people protesting his shows, even though he's selling out arenas, but Aziz Ansari navigates the waters differently. Um, yeah. And Louis CK, of course, just won a Grammy this past weekend for best comedy album. Um, so I think it raises interesting questions, not just about post cancellation, but whether or not these figures were ever canceled to begin with. Um, and, you know, is this just a, a straw man that gets thrown up uh, in an attempt to, you know, um, lament clapbacks? Is this a, a straw man that gets thrown up, um, you know, to kind of reassert one's position to, to speak freely? Um, and uh, I think this is kind of one of the things that is distressing about contemporary comedic culture is, you know, in some ways, I think individuals who are going to see shows by Ansari or, or CK are kind of doing so as a political statement against Me Too and the values and the um, the calls for justice that it's pressing, right? And then it's like, you know, that's something that really is, is scary and concerning um, about our commitment to a more inclusive and just society. Right, um, well, it's, and- it's one of the interesting things that kind of unites the, you know, the, what Trump did in, by way of harm, he also fueled quite a bit of the support of people for whom he disagreed with, right? And so, you know, you think about the the Supreme Court hearings, and now one of the trending books on Amazon is How to Raise an Anti-Racist Baby, I believe, right? And so the America has a long history of uh, sort of leaning in, I, that's probably not the word or phrase I want to use there, right? But But sort of really pushing a lot of support toward people for whom controversy exists, right? So Allen Ginsberg was the best-selling American poet of all time with Howell um, up until Jewel, I think, sold more poems than him eventually uh, with, <laughs> I think that was the record, but but it was based on the indecency um, arrest and charges, right? So we get this, we get this push, but it, it'll be interesting to watch in the future um, Aziz Ansari and sort of whether or not he gets fully recouped or if he's to Pete's point, if he never really got canceled at, or if the audience just sort of got divided somehow and split. And I think that's probably most accurate that, you know, the support that CK or Ansari had was really galvanized at this moment. Although people who were on the periphery probably abandoned ship for, for understandable reasons. Now, um, just to kind of kind of try to, if I can jump in there for a second, um, uh, you know, I think that your your point about Trump is 
well taken, right? Even though it's frustrating. Um, uh, and, and it really has me thinking, especially as I was watching the hearings for Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, um, the, the way in which we're seeing kind of this um, this inversion where we're seeing politicians now perhaps trying to be comedians. And, and a lot of the feedback that came out of those hearings were you know, the way she was being treated by, by certain members of, of Congress were attempts, or the Senate Judiciary Committee in particular, right, um, was an attempt to get on to Fox News, right? And I, and I think about this in particular when I see social media stunts, for lack of a better term, being performed by people like Matt Goetz or, or Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, where I, I can't help but think, like, are these politicians or are these, you know web comedians, right? Like, you know, so much of what they're doing is based on bad faith, bad jokes, you know, from my liberal point of view. But I mean, it's kind of scary, like how much of what we're seeing in their public output seems to be kind of based on this kind of mocking derision humor. Um, so that, you know, on the one hand, we our collection is focusing on comedians who are engaging in kind of intellectual work in the public discourse. And on the other hand, we're now seeing politicians who, instead of doing their political work, or I should say as an extension of their political work, are engaging in just like really crappy comedy. Um, and so, um, you know... That's scary. And, and I'm particularly excited because colleagues of ours, Matt Sinkowitz and Nick Marks, have a, a book coming out um, literally within in, within weeks on, you know, the conservative comedy industry and, and how it really has been understudied and underattended to. Um, and, and our hope is that, you know, some of the essays in our collection, as well as the, the important work they're doing in their monograph, will really cause a reevaluation of um, how humor and comedy is being used by the right um, for divisive purposes, for fundraising purposes, um, and, and in some ways kind of undermining bipartisanship and, and legislative progress. Yeah, it's a, it, it'll be certainly a field to study and also, I mean, to kind of bridge the gap there with Ansari, you know, his, his latest special, which is just a half hour, really talks through how this divisiveness, he actually, he goes, he takes progressives to task in terms of the the pattern or or the willingness to write off people with whom we disagree as just being dopes or idiots and sort of attacking them rather than engaging and he says you know this is this might make you feel better but it's not helping it's not actually getting anybody to listen or have conversations or understand and it's it's interesting that it comes out right at this moment for him professionally um but but i think it also there's something to be said for that conservative humor. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in this conversation, talk a little bit about Larry, the cable guy. And the, you know, this is a piece Pete mentioned earlier that there are, um, David Dewberry wrote the piece on Larry, the cable guy is the, um, anti-politically correct comedian. And this was a piece where, um, I actually had pretty serious disagreements with Dewberry on, the argument specifically, I grew up in central Florida in the nineties when Larry, the cable guy was a shock jock on the radio and said wildly offensive things. And they sold t-shirts at the circle K with Larry, the cable guy on it in 1992 for the election. And, um, you know, the, the thing that's interesting that about Larry, the cable guy is this willingness to become more politically correct. And so he takes the Confederate flag off of his merchandise and replaces it with the American flag. He quits saying the word retard. He quits, um, he quits making homophobic jokes or, 
subtly racist jokes or overtly racist jokes. And instead now he tells fart jokes and he's tomater on cars and he's, you know, he's more than willing to leverage political correctness to further his career. Um, but he very much has this rhetoric of anti-political correctness, which again, no surprise to us that there are paradoxes at the core of comedians like Jerry Seinfeld or um, Jerry Seinfeld or Larry the Cable Guy. Um, but Larry the Cable Guy is one where I think we have to pay attention specifically when we're looking at conservative humor. We have to pay attention to the places where the humor by and large is apolitical, that it's this sort of open willingness to refuse politics, right? And to, to sort of shroud yourself in white middle-class values is sort of a cloak. And so you think of some of the more conservative comedians out there, um, you know, I'm thinking specifically of like a Nate Bargatze, you know, I don't have any evidence that he's conservative, but I feel pretty strongly based on some comments he's let out in different interviews that he is, but you watch his comedy and it's not overtly political. And so we, we have to start paying attention to this willingness to overlook political issues and try to dig in on whether or not a political humor is actually political in its own mission, right? And and it's also for me, I think that's a complicated position because you know we think about. I mentioned earlier, I believe that stand-up comedy holds this privileged place in American culture, or sort of this special spot. And part of it is that it's the one art form where we feel as a culture like we have the right or the space to tell comedians what they should be saying or what positions they should have or should believe or should be saying, uh, advancing. Right. And we kind of see that, uh, Pete, did you have anything else you wanted to add on that Dewberry piece? Uh, I mean, the, the Dewberry piece is interesting because it gets us thinking about, um, you know, he, he went and saw Larry the Cable Guy. So he's he's speculating there on, um, you know, audience reception and, and what is the audience doing with this material and thinking about kind of the contradictions um, therein. And I think it, it feeds in nicely to the Doug Stanhope piece, um, which in some ways is is kind of offering a consideration of charged humor, Beckrafting's concept, through, a, you know, a white male libertarian comedian. Um, and on the one hand, you have someone who is presenting himself as kind of standing up to the majority, um, is independent, you know, kind of very much plays into a, and, and uh, Clark underlines this, right? That kind of um, uh, the independent free thinker, you know, a kind of a Thoreauvian Emersonian tradition, um, which I love as a, you know, Jared and I are both trained in literature initially. So, you know, <laughs> we love kind of invoking a, uh, the writers of the past, um, but also the way in which, you know, in, in this effort, he kind of has um, played into these bubbles that have emerged, right? The, these eco chambers, right? Um, we mentioned earlier someone like Louis C.K., who, you know, seemed to rhetorically kind of navigate between um, conservative and liberal audiences in a very kind of fascinating way that, in fact, perhaps um, alighted the disgusting uh, behavior he was exhibiting behind the scenes, right? I mean, on stage, he was he was often espousing anti-racist, um, uh, feminist views at times, right? And then behind the scenes was engaging in behavior that was uh, inexcusable, right? Um, so I, I think that raises some, some questions of concern too. Um, to return to Stanhope, 
what strikes me here is, um, you know, his positioning on stage and how that appeals to a certain audience that seems to be right-leaning, that seems to be more male, that seems to be predominantly white. Uh, it reminds me of a comment that um, the media scholar Dana Boyd made about Trump's America, where everyone feels they're part of the resistance. You know, even people who vote for the party in charge feel like they're resisting the system. And it's like, no, you're the system, right? Um, so I, I think this kind of um, oppositional stance, which also ties into John Lamone's earlier work on stand-up comedian as objection, is important. But also, you know, it's kind of fascinating when the group that hegemonically speaking, right, to invoke our Gramsci, um, the, the group that's in control in our society starts to posit themselves as the defenders of our society, it starts to posit themselves as kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a waning majority, right? Um, and the defensiveness when you still have so much cultural power, I think, is um, unsettling and yet deserving of our critical attention. Yeah, I think we have to pay attention to folks like we have to pay attention to folks like Stan Hope and how they situate themselves in relationship to the broader culture and and really thinking through in his case, I think it's interesting to situate figures like Stan Hope into a, a sort of a broader history of stand up comedy. And so Pete mentioned um, John Lamone's book abjection in america or stand-up comedy in theory and he he posits that stand-up comedy is a distinctly american art form where it's his thesis is that stand-up comedy is abjection stood upright and thinking through these are these are spaces where we hold up the thing culturally that is abject and so in some respects we we think of this sort of the ugliest, ugliest parts of ourselves that we're most ashamed of, or, you know, Whitney Cummings, for instance, has a great quote where she says that whenever she thinks of where she, something that she is too embarrassed to talk about, she knows right away, that's the thing she needs to open with. Right. And, and really talking through the ugliness of our world and Stanhope is Stanhope isn't necessarily overtly talking about that ugliness in the same way. He's, he's more so, reflecting the anxieties of the crowd and the audience kind of back on them in some respects. And I think that that for me is one of the, my work in, in white male, straight cisgendered manhood is really that American manhood itself is built on anxiety going back to like Krevkir, right? He's walking around Cape Cod trying to figure out what it means to even be a man in America. And then you move forward and you've got, ruminations by Thoreau and Jefferson and others who are just trying to figure out what the hell does it even mean to be a man in America, despite the fact that those are people for whom privilege was very much secure, right? And so that anxiety is really the core defining feature in my mind. And that's what we get with Stanhope, um, which is which is fascinating. I also just nerded out. I, um, I actually got to meet Stanhope yesterday, so I, I don't want this to go unrecorded without that going in. Um, I saw him at the Atlanta airport and uh, it was very exciting. It was very exciting. And I went up to him and I said, you know, you're reflecting my anxiety. And he, was, <laughs> he very much appreciated that. I didn't really say that. I, I'm still trying to <laughs> wrestle with you connecting Stanhope to Krebker, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was an early American writer for those who uh, did not have to take a, a, an American literature survey in grad school. 
<laughs> so, like, it's pretty American, even. Right? Sorry about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, right, right. Letters from an American farmer, right? Right. In um, in putting together this collection, and you've sort of you know talked about it a little bit, like. And then, you know, and what's been happening recently since putting this together, do you see any kind of, I don't know if it's like the next big thing in comedy or what, like, what is it? What do you think that next thing will be, whether it's in humor studies, thinking about stand-up comedy or thinking about how comedians are using sort of these, the tools that they have for um, sort of activism or pub being public intellectuals where do you see comedy headed that's a big question if, if i can kind is. of yeah. <laughs> um i mean i'm not really one prone to speculation normally but um you know I, one, one of the chapters we didn't talk about yet is um the sizer and ornstein on Stuart huff which i thought was really exciting um for comedy studies because you know so much of our attention is on the mainstream or, you know, the folks who are on TV or the folks who are on Netflix or are on uh, in movies, right? And Stuart Huff is a road comic, right? Like he's out there doing the work. Um, so on the one hand, this attention to the average experience, I, I, I mean, I don't want to use average derisively, right? But like, you know, most stand-up comedians are not on Netflix, right? Most stand-up comedians are living in hotel rooms, um, going from gig to gig. Um, and so the focus on the kind of work being done by a comedian living that life, moving venue to venue, um, the need to be flexible uh, in doing so, um, exploring ideas, right? Like in many ways, he's doing the intellectual work more than anyone we talked about because he's, you know, kind of rather than position uh, presenting a partisan point of view or, or you know, he's, he's exploring ideas. Um, so we're really grateful to have... Um, uh, Susan and Aviva contribute because they're also bringing in ethnography and interviewing, which was a method that was not used in, in the other studies. Um, and uh, I think that that offers a future for comedy studies to consider in particular, right? Like, you know, and I know people like um, Stephanie Brown are doing work on um, authenticity and, and kind of, you know, doing ethnography, interviewing comedians, looking at the, you know, going to the spaces and seeing how, how it functions, you know, beyond the, the, the metropoles or, or the main, um, what we might call media capitals of, of stand-up comedy, right? Like how is stand-up comedy working in, you know, suburban Philadelphia, right? Um, so I, I think that, that for the field, that's an exciting area. Um, in terms of where comedy as a, an industry in its own right is heading, oof. Yeah. So well, many different know, directions. So many know, different directions, yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, I'm glad you brought up Orenstein and um, Sizer's essay there because I think, you know, I don't know what the landscape will look like, but I feel like there's some pretty um, – pretty easy to identify trends that are growing currently and I expect them to continue. And I think what we're going to see from comedians is an increased, uh, we see the value of what people perceive as authenticity. So they want that, whatever it looks like, they want it to feel honest. They also, even if it's honest and it's dishonesty, so thinking through shock comics, they want a comedian who is being honestly shocking that these are things they don't agree with, right? Um, but, but we're going to see this rise in authenticity continue, I believe. We're also, I believe, whatever it looks like, it's going to be much more sort of Benedict Anderson imagined communities where 
we see we see this through the pandemic. People want to connect. So we see Zoom shows rising. Tom Segura and Christina Pajitsky had shows that would they would sell out, I mean, thousands of seats in a Zoom room to watch them watch YouTube videos, right? But it's this idea that you can engage personally with the comedian. So you whatever it is, it's going to involve smaller communities of people united by interests, be it comedic interest or topical interest. There's a surprising amount of overlap in terms of topics for certain comedians. So if you are a libertarian, you almost always talk about population overgrowth, right? That kind of thing. And I think also we're going to start to see um, opportunities for inside jokes with that comedian. So you'll see merchandise that is a reference to an inside joke on a on a certain comedian show, or you'll see hashtags that do that on the internet. You'll see um, if you listen to Doug Benson's podcast, Doug Loves Movies, there's a whole sort of uh, almost Rocky Horror Picture Show where he says, you can check out my dates and deets on douglovesmovies.com. And everybody yells out, that's douglovesmovies.com. Baka, wallet, shh, Ted Danson. And so it's this whole thing where it's an inside joke that sort of unites the community that they know what to yell at the right time. So I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that. We might still see the sort of mega the mega stardom, but I don't think that necessarily holds the same cachet. I think a lot of people miss that personal connection they get with the comedian. So, um, you know, you don't get, with the exception of the Dave Chappelle's out there, you don't get the mega blockbusters anymore. You get lots more of these smaller sort of shows. And I think we'll see a lot of that. Yeah. I I think in going back to comedy studies, I mean, what Jared's talking about in many ways, um, Reminds me of kind of Lauren Berlant's work on effective publics, right? Um, and and how these how it might reconstitute these different groups, but also, um, you know, leaning into work that that Sinkowitz and Marx are doing, right? You know, what what might be the the limits or the dangers even of these these publics that emerge in the process? Um, and, and that's why we haven't talked about yet our final essay in the collection. Um, but I think that that um, Rob King's essay is a great place to end. Um, the collection, because in some ways he's he's reminding us of the kind of Habermasian quality um, of discussing, you know, the public sphere and the comedians operating in the sphere, and and examining that with with a good dose of, of skepticism for the stand-up comedian, I think, um, and, and doing so through Bill Hicks, who in some ways, you know, obviously has has been gone for some time now, but also lingers for many comedians as kind of like an exemplar. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, Rob's examination there of the comedian's function in society and how the comedian functions, uh, how positions themselves is, is, is really key um, in terms of, you know, the exchange of ideas and the, the concerns over, you know, fundamentalism broadly conceived. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, we can even extrapolate from there to think about, you know, the standard comedian, much like the preacher, right, is is a leader figure, is an authority figure, stands in front of the room, offers a message, but also caters the message to that audience and, and the implications therein. Um, and I, I think that what we'll see kind of going forward is more of the kind of um, less of the focus on the comedian as an individual actor and more of a kind of a relational approach, right? Like what are the relationships that emerge between audiences and the comedian um, and thinking about these things, you know, industrial and industrially, um, 
you know, how do they make a living? How do they cater their message? How does the message develop over time? Um, and, you know, Beck Crafting, who, who, whose work is throughout this book, um, you know, she's thinking about the economy of stand-up comedy right now in, in, her, in her next project. Um, and I think in, in many ways she'll kind of steer the field um, in that direction as well. And I think that that's where it needs to go, particularly in thinking about um, the political import and the various valences that, that come to the fore with stand-up. Yeah, I think that's going to be a really important piece. She's uh, Her recent project is really considering the sort of boom days and the moments in history when comedy peaks and then looking at the industry. And and in the current moment, I've, I've heard a talk where she delivered from some of the draft material and it, you know, she's complicating the idea that moving to a digital space in and of itself will move us to a more meritocratous or democratic kind of form of comedy because it, it's not necessarily a safer space full stop for women and people of color. And that's kind of where that myth of the meritocracy comes in that back in the days of touring, you know, it was so you had an entire different, entirely different circuit for African-American comedians called the Chitlin circuit than white comedians. And, and especially being women, um, women comedians couldn't just travel around in their, broken down station wagon or whatever car they had to go to shows and feel safe doing that because you don't make a lot of money as a road comic. I also, um, I also think that Clark's piece on Bill Hicks is important specifically kind of tied somewhat to the, the conservative comedy that we keep coming back to, but, but also thinking through the influence of more conservative modes of Christianity and how they've influenced stand-up comedy and culture. And I'm, I'm always struck by two things. One that's less important here. The first is how many comedians have backgrounds in English or were English majors in college? It's a, a shocking number um, relative to the others. This is anecdotal. But then also how many comedians have either been raised really super conservatively in the church or literally worked in the church. So, um, you know, you've got Bill Hicks is, is sort of steeped in that tradition. I believe his father, Sam Kennison was a preacher. Daniel Tosh's father was a minister. Taylor Tomlinson, who, by the way, Taylor Tomlinson, if, if you're listening to this, is her most recent special is incredible and really talks through purity culture and how the church um, did some damage to her by way of mental health and her anxiety and processing of what it means to be a woman in, in contemporary America. Um, but we see all of these Pete Holmes was raised in the church, Paul F. Tompkins, you know, you've got these folks who are very much familiar with the language of Christianity and they tend to do very well, but also find these pockets together. So I think as, as the work moves on, one of the things I like about that chapter is Bill Hicks is the, he's been dead almost 30 years at this point, but his influence on stand-up comedy still very much persists. And I think if we're really to understand where we are with comedy today, we, we definitely have to reckon with the boom days of fundamentalist Christianity, that sort of um, midpoint of Ronald Reagan, that 85, 86 window to really kind of, I mean, it, it's still here present, but it's also kind of taken the form of this watered down, um, non-denominational church. And I think that's very much the product of the digital age, but I digress on that. Um, but we have to pay attention to conservative Christianity and how it shapes comedy and what we find funny and what we don't. 
Any graduate students out there, Jared just gave you a dissertation project. <laughs> don't get <laughs> to it before that I book. do. Yeah. Huh? I said, don't get to it before I do. <laughs> well, that segues perfectly. And we've been talking for a while into my final question, um, which hopefully is an easy question, right? Um, for if you have anything either with this collection that's going on, you want to sort of plug or talk about or either of you have new projects you're working on that you want to kind of plug out there. So one last shout out to whatever you need. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing about this project, so uh, Jared and I didn't discuss our meet cute, right. But uh, he was my mentor when I got to graduate school from my MA and when I got to Florida State, um, I was doing, I came in wanting to do comedy studies and he was doing masculinity studies. Um, and we kind of have, it kind of built out from there. I ended up doing my dissertation on masculinity and comedy um, in kind of going back and rereading, you know, literary texts like Lolita and Invisible Man and thinking through laughter and humor and how they work in those texts. And then Jared uh, is working on um, his project, which he can talk more about, but um, you know, I I have actually um, I, I now primarily work in in media industry studies and in film history, so this is my fun project that kind of ties back to my time as an English um, English scholar uh, or you know a literature person, um, and and uh, we're currently working on um, me and, and Will Costanzo are putting together uh, an anthology on screen comedy. Um, that will bring together uh, about 35 scholars working across screen comedy to kind of offer where they see the field going and what do they see as kind of the major um, theories, methods, and directions for the field broadly conceived, at least from a media studies vantage. So that's that's kind of where I'm at um, in my work. Yeah, and I've been I've been buried in this project for some time now. That hopefully I'll start to really get some traction. It's uh, about eighty percent of the way finished, but it's a project on white masculinity and stand up comedy. And so um, tied back to what we've been talking about, we know that stand up comedy is like many um, like many businesses in America set up in such a way that really shields white men at the top. But what I'm setting out to ask is you know, with all of the white men we have to choose from, how come there's not more motion at the top in terms of who has staying power? So what what are the unifying factors that, why does Jim Gaffigan get to make nine specials telling what seems like the same fat joke? Or, um, you know, why does Chris Titus have seven specials where he tells the same story about his mother committing suicide? What is it about this sort of what do we understand about these white men who are at the top that has this staying power and, and looking to it in, in terms of understanding how comedy responds to those anxieties and what's been long understood as an anxious white masculinity with the hope eventually of really spelling out a framework for understanding or, or having people understand comedy as more than just the language, that there's something deeper. It's, it's not just the language, it's the bodies that are speaking, it's how they're speaking, it's um, it's the politics with which they're coming from that they all kind of operate in tandem. Uh, and that's what creates, you know, when you have a comedian who unifies all of those features at once, that will, that's what creates sort of success and quotation marks for many of them. Um, and it also points to when they're unsuccessful. So John Mulaney had a certain style and when he did the show of Mulaney, he abandoned it and it was canceled mid season. But then he returned to that style and John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch and it won awards, right? And so 
figuring out what it is that we can look at to, to understand that popularity and how we can use that framework to understand, say, the rise of comedians like Dave Chappelle. What's he doing that sort of meets this as well? How do we use that framework to understand that? So hopefully that one will be wrapped up sometime in the, the coming year. And um, if, if this book was any indication, you can look forward to seeing it on the shelf. I've started this project five years ago, so I imagine it'll be out in 2035. Fresh off the presses. I'll look forward to seeing you then, Rebecca. <laughs> well, thank you both for talking to me. It's been really great. Again, um, Jared Champion and Peter Kunze, who are the author or the put together the edited collection of Taking a Stand, Contemporary U.S. Stand-Up Comedians as Public Intellectuals. Thank you for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you. Thank you. You probably shouldn't have given us a platform, but we were happy to take it. (laughs) 